0: Hello from Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and welcome back to State of the Vote. During the 2020 election, we sat down every week to discuss the national political map as voters around the country cast their ballots. We broke down the most important shift in decades and the impact it would have on the electoral map and how that shift upended campaign strategy. This year, for the midterms, we're going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and Senate and set the foundation for power dynamics leading up to the presidential election. We have partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes They are the election mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. As my good friend Mike Madrid and I have talked about a lot on this show, the most important aspect of polls is movement. So from now through Election Day, each week the DDHQ team is going to walk us through where the biggest movement is happening, in what races, and why. And if you want to follow along, Decision Desk HQ is where you can find their House and Senate elections models, which update daily. I am joined today by two members of the DDHQ team. First, Scott Tranter. He is an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. He's also a practitioner, meaning he's been responsible for data that drives high-stakes campaign decisions. Scott, welcome back to Politicology. It's great to see you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're also joined by Kyle Williams. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, thanks for making the time and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Let's start with the environment, and no, I don't mean trees and leaves. What do we mean when we say environment, Scott? And are there any big shifts to be aware of?
1: Yeah, so when we say environment, we th- say things like generic ballot, which is when pollsters ask generically, um, you know, do you support a Republican or Democratic candidate? Um, another thing we, you know, we we modelers look at is um, approval rating of the current president in power. So that would be President Joe Biden um, right now. His approval rating is underwater. Um, trend wise, I believe in Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe trend wise this week, he is the highest he's been probably in four or five months. He's still underwater, but still highest. Yeah. He's been trending. Um, upward. yeah, I've been trending upwards. So I guess a good week for him, but still underwater. But I guess from an environmental standpoint, the other, the other, I guess, minor points environment would be, um, fundraising and things like that. But we, we have yet to get, um, real updated numbers on that. Um, uh, w- one thing to note on the, on the generic ballot stuff is especially if you, you want some. Some, some tips on how to read these. There's two ways in which you can do a poll. One is registered voters and one is likely voters. And oftentimes, polls don't put that in the headlines. What you do is you got to go to the bottom and look at the fine print. Registered voters is basically talking to everyone who's a registered voter. Likely voters is talking to who you think is going to show up. And I always like to say this. If there are 10 registered voters in the room, without fail, usually between only four and six of them show up. And so that means is despite them being able to be registered to vote and despite them being polled, they're not going to show up and actually affect this this fall's election. So it's a long way of saying is we like the likely voter polls, especially on the generic ballot better. And, um, you know, if you look at the at the averages, the generic ballot is is still pretty good for the Republicans on the likely voter. um, And it looks better for the Democrats on the registered voter, which is historically how it's been. Okay,
0: Kyle, while we're on the topic of environment, I think this is probably where we would put something like the strength of the historical trend of midterms favoring the party that's out of power, right? They tend to be, historically speaking, almost always a referendum on who's in the White House. Is there anything else you'd add to this environment bucket?
2: So. Sort of touching off of that, if we look at the 2010 midterms, in 2010, Barack Obama was president. The Affordable Care Act at that point in time was very unpopular. Democrats were destroyed in that midterm. In 2014, Barack Obama was still the president. It wasn't quite a red wave to the extent that 2010 was, but again, you saw that Democrats- You know, it was a not a not a good election for them. And then, if you go to 2018, you sort of see the mirror inverse of that. Trump was president; uh, it was sort of his midterm. He was quite unpopular around some of the things he and Republicans in Congress at that time were doing. If you just look at public opinion polling from that time period, and Republicans were washed out of Congress at that point. So, what you would expect going into an environment like like this, Joe Biden's first midterm election, is you would see okay, Democrats have a very narrow House majority. Democrats have a very narrow Senate majority. So if you just extrapolate these sort of environmental questions forward, you would probably say, well, Republicans should retake the House and they should at least be able to flip one Senate seat. And one of the interesting things I think we're seeing now, and I'm sure this is something we'll talk about at much greater length, is that while Republicans do look like they are on track to flip the House, they look like, in our current forecast, probably to do so by a smaller margin than what you would expect for the party out of power to do. And it's currently a huge open question if they will even be able to flip that one Senate seat they need to reclaim the House majority. So I think that's one of the things that makes it really interesting uh, where we are right now in 2022 compared to historically what you'd expect if you just extrapolated forward.
0: This is a good point to pause and remind our listeners that this is why Democrats have spent a lot of time trying to reframe this upcoming midterm election as a choice election as opposed to a referendum election. And uh, and we spent a lot of time on other episodes talking about that. This trend, this historical trend, everything Kyle just outlined, explains why they're doing that. Okay, let's shift to the Senate first. We'll look at the Senate, then we'll look at the House. Um we probably ought to start with a table set. Scott, the current balance in the Senate is 50-50. 34 of 100 seats are up for re-election. So Senate has six-year terms. It means every two years, about a third of those seats are up for election. This year, it's 34. How many of those are actually in play? What does it mean to be in play? Who's on offense? Who's on defense? What do we need to know?
1: So when we, when we say in play, we use the term toss-up. And a toss-up, and we're quantitative. So we've built a model that gives us a quantitative probability of an outcome. And right now, all we see is one race in the Senate that is, that is a quantifiable toss-up. It's the Nevada Senate race. We have several races in what we call the lean D or lean R. And what that means is that race has a 65% chance or greater of going a certain direction. So like Georgia, we have it at lean D, which is roughly 65% chance that um, uh, Raphael Warnock wins re-election there. Um, whereas in, um, let me pull up another one here, say North Carolina we have it at lean R where we have it as Ted Budd at a 66 percent chance of, of of winning that Senate seat and so basically what we're saying here at least what the model is telling us is there's only one true toss-up and that is Nevada and that has it at 52 percent for Katherine Cortez Masto to win um, which is mathematically a a, a a coin flip with a slight advantage to her because she's the incumbent um, these, these ratings have kind of bounced around quite a bit and especially in the last month, giving polling and things like that. And then when we get the fundraising here in about a week or so, it'll probably move around a little bit more, but they're also highly affected by the generic ballot, which we talked about earlier. It, it looks like a tough environment for the Republicans, given um, given where we're at right now, the model has it at fifty-fifty, right? Like the de- the models predicting the Democrats all have fifty seats, Republicans have fifty seats, and because you have Vice President Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker, it gives control of the Senate to the Democrats.
0: I also want to talk about biggest movers. So, um, every week, several times a week, you guys look at what are the biggest movers, the races. And in this week, Wisconsin really stood out to me. Um, You've got, uh, there's a big difference between your model and 538's model. You are 94% certain Ron Johnson's going to win re election, but they're only 58% certain. Can you talk a little bit about what's making up that difference, Kyle?
2: Sure, sure. (laughs) So, Wisconsin is really interesting because Wisconsin is a state where, you know, Joe Biden very, very narrowly won that state in 2020. And here we are two years later, it's Joe Biden's uh, midterm election. And again, as we spoke about a bit earlier, you would expect the president's party to do really badly in a midterm election. So here we have a state that Joe Biden won by just the skin of his fingernails two years ago. And we have a now two-term incumbent Republican, Ron Johnson, who has won re-election twice, the first time in 2010, taking out an incumbent Democrat and the second time winning re-election at a point in time in 2016, when people didn't really even expect him to win. If you think back to 2016, actually, I think the, um, National Republicans actually sort of left him for dead a bit and stopped spending on his campaign, but he pulled it out. And so essentially what you see here now is the models looking at a multi-term Republican incumbent in a seat that Democrats barely won two years ago and saying, well, this is a Republican, this is a year when Republicans should do really well because Democrats control the White House. Like Ron Johnson should be a layup for re-election because he's a multi-term Republican senator who's won difficult elections before in this state. He's well known in the electorate. If you look at Wisconsin, Wisconsin, As an electorate, Wisconsin is much wider than the country overall. Wisconsin is a very white state. It's not a particularly highly educated state if we think about things through the prism of educational polarization. And so if you're the model and you take those things, multi-term Republican incumbent, midterm when Joe Biden is the president, state that doesn't have a lot of ethnic diversity, state that doesn't have statistically a very high level of education. Uh, those things should make it pretty easy for ron johnson to win re-election now i know we're seeing a lot of polling recently that suggests that uh that our model sees as well that mandela barnes who's the democratic nominee um is you know a lot more competitive than i think you would expect based on uh sort of thinking about it from a fundamentals perspective but what our model's really hearing is that we have a republican incumbent joe biden is the president he should be a very clear favorite to win
1: it well to your point, Kyle, the, the, the polling shows it's competitive, but the DDHQ poll average, which looks at the polling and takes into account things like registered voters versus likely voters, as well as quality of pollster, things like that. The DDHQ poll average has Ron Johnson up um, 2.2. Uh, f- a Four out of the last five polls had him up, um, including um, uh, a Dem polling outfit called Civics, um, as well as a Republican polling outfit, Trafalgar. Um, the only poll that had Mandela Barnes up was Siena College, which is a nonpartisan poll. And all these are likely voter polls. So they're, they're what we would consider higher quality. Also, you got to look at the candidate finances, which is what the model looks at. And now this is a little dated and it'll be updated in a week or so when we get the, the numbers. But Ron Johnson had twice as much cash on hand um, and uh, twice as many um, contributions as Mandela Barnes. So. All those 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 uh environmentals that you mentioned, plus the most recent data, the polling and, and the candidate finances really make it um, uh, favorable for Ron Johnson. That being said, a model, the the model probability is not a prediction. It's a it's a measuring stick of where we're at today. This model will change, especially if Mandela Barnes outraises or some of the polling starts um, um, going his way. Right now, I I can't speak to why Nate Silver has it at 58%. He's pretty good at this stuff. I just know why ours has it so high.
0: Okay, one more thing I want to touch on in the Senate. Uh, In Nevada, bouncing back to Nevada, which is my home state, by the way, there was a 10-point swing since the middle of last week in Nevada toward the Republican candidate, Adam Laxalt. Um, This is in the Nevada Senate race. Can you explain what's driving that movement
2: I mean, over the past few weeks, uh, you know, we've seen a number of polls um, in Nevada that I think in particular, if you look at, uh, I think over the past week, we've seen a few polls in the Nevada Senate race. I think we saw one likely voter poll from Trafalgar that had Laxalt up by four. Um, I think we saw another Data for Progress poll, which is a part, um, they're a partisan pollster that had Laxalt up by one, again, a likely voter poll. All of these things combined sort of continuing to indicate that Nevada Senate is a really competitive Senate race, but showing Adam Laxalt with some uh, continuing to have some advantage in in polling against Catherine Cortez Masto, who, again, is the the Democratic incumbent who only very narrowly won in in 2016.
1: You know, the generic ballot has been getting a little bit better for the Republicans in the in the last week, which has contributed to the jump. But the biggest movement which you're looking for, the biggest 10 point movement um, for Laxalt just literally comes from some pretty high quality polls, um, likely voter polls, um, from Insider Advantage, Trafalgar Group, and Data for Progress. Now, there's some mixed partisan in there. There's some Republican pollsters in there. There's some Democratic pollsters in there, but they're all pretty consistent. Now, there is one on there, Melman, which is a Democratic um, leaning um, pollster, who had um, Masto up four. But you know, the DDHQ poll average has Laxalt up three point five. So the way I would look at this is, is while there's been a big movement, the movement has become has 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 come from the polling we still slightly favor, you know, the model slightly favors Cortez Masto. Um, so the way I would, I would tell people to think about it is despite the polls saying that Laxalt's ahead by three and a half points, the model still gives a slight advantage to Cortez Masto simply because of the environment in the in, or I'm sorry, simply because of her incumbency and the cash on hand she had. The last time we had good data on that, she had $10 million, almost $10 million cash on hand and Laxalt had 2.1. I would expect another big swing here when we get the numbers in, especially if Laxalt is still considerably behind in the, uh, in the fundraising. Um, uh, But you know, that that's the, the big movement is the polling.
0: Let's turn to the house briefly. So why don't you just walk us Fun one. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So what are the biggest movers in the house this week? Um, it looks like four out of five of your top races are moving, uh, toward the Democrats, but Iowa, for some reason is moving toward Republicans. Do you want to explain what those are and what's up with Iowa?
2: So in Iowa, I think uh, the biggest mover we saw was in Iowa three, I think, which is uh, Cindy Axney. So I think it's interesting to look at the House delegation in Iowa, sort of tracking how the country overall is transformed. So in 20, so Iowa has four congressional districts. In 2018, Democrats won three out of four of them, flipping two of those seats, holding one. And then Republicans only kept one of those. Then if you go to 2020, uh, Joe Biden's very narrowly winning election um, and Republicans actually flipped two out of the three uh, seats in iowa that were held by republicans cindy axney's seat iowa three which this is basically des moines is now the only seat in iowa that democrats continue to hold and this past week um we saw a new poll in Iowa um, from Impact Research that had that poll as as even. Now, I think it's interesting, uh, like with uh, House polls in particular, because there are so many House districts, we don't see as many polls for a given House district as we see for a given Senate district. But here, for example, we see a really competitive House district that Cindy Axney just barely held on to in 20, just barely held on to in 2020. Uh, and our models looking at that and seeing that, you know, that race should be really, really competitive given the outcome, given what this poll found and given how we know Iowa has been trending toward Republicans more broadly over the past 10 years.
0: Anything else in the house we need to be aware of right now, Scott?
1: Not in the individual seats, but just the uh the, the macro, the mean seat projection. I don't know if we're getting that next.
0: Yeah. Why don't we do that? So the yeah. current balance of power outlook, right, has remained pretty consistent. You're predicting Republican control of the House with seventy-five percent. Uh, and a 37% chance that Republicans win back the Senate. So why don't you talk a little bit about balance of power projections and whether or not these shifts, because the you know the House confidence is you know, uh, minus 2.5% from last week, and then the Republican confidence is up 2% from last week in the Senate. Are these kinds of shifts meaningful or are they marginal at this point?
1: Um, I think they're meaningful. I'd be curious to think what Kyle thinks, but uh, it, it, the model has been consistent in predicting the the Republicans are going to control the House. But what has been more interesting to me is if we look at the model on, say, August 1, on August 1, it thought the Republicans were going to have 235 seats, Democrat 200. As of today, it's 228 to 207. And now that may not seem like that's a seven seat, you know, reduction for the Republicans. That is pretty massive in terms of a model movement. That means that there are seven seats. The Republicans um, we're we're, we're probably going to win, and now they're they're no longer there. And the 228 number is interesting because you need 218 seats to control the house. Um, so that means that if the model's correct, the Republicans will have a 10 seat margin, which is relatively thin. Um, I'm sure you'll you could have some interesting guests to debate how that'll play out, but I can just say mathematically, 228 to 207 is pretty close, especially given the trends. And the trends are this. Like I said, since August one, it's the Republicans haven't been getting stronger um, or gaining more seats in the projection. They've been shedding them. So if this trend continues, you know, because they have a bad fundraising October, some of the polling comes out. We should talk about the polling as a caveat here in a second. But some of those things, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the model, you know, start projecting 222, 225 in terms of Republican control, which is still, you know, pretty solid for them. But once we're in there, we're we're inside of a polling error. Um. Uh. where, you know, if there's a pretty big polling error, then all of a sudden, maybe the Democrats keep the House. Now, I don't want anyone to like latch on that. I I wouldn't bet on a polling error, but, but we're getting close enough where those types of things will start, you'll start having conversations about
0: that. Where these margins of error become very important. Yes. Yeah. Let's uh, briefly, uh, I want to just make sure that our listeners understand earlier when we were citing probabilities of ele- election outcomes, we are not talking about actual polling numbers. These are not, this is not where people are polling. These are confidence ratings. It's like essentially, like gambling. Right. It's right? like gambling. Right. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about, uh, how probabilities work just briefly. So, um, so people can understand what's going into these numbers.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty con- I'll let, I'll give you the layman's term and then I'll let Dr. Kyle Williams, Great. um, uh, break down the math, but, Basically, it comes down to is the models looking at all these different variables, all these different facts, all these different data sets, and it's coming up with a probability of a binary outcome. Very fancy way of saying, do I think this horse is going to win or do I think they're going to lose? Or do I think this house member is going to win or do I think they're going to lose? And instead of using a qualitative statement like I think they're going to win or I think they're going to lose, we give it a probability, right? And so for those of you gamble and even if you don't gamble, you probably get the concept. 50-50 means, I don't know, go either way. 60/40 means that okay sometimes maybe 6 out of 10 times this is what's going to happen but 4 out of 10 times it won't happen you know and so that's why we we kind of break it down that way right like if i see something at 70 80% yeah 20 to 30% of the time it's not going to happen but you know 65 70% of the time it is If I bet on it 10 times, six to seven times, I'm going to be right. If I pick the 60 to 70% and vice versa. And I think that's how people should look at this. People look at these probabilities and they round up to one or round down to zero, (laughs) right? Like that's not how they should be used. You should look at them for what they are. Right. Kyle, anything to add?
2: Yeah. So I was going to expand off, you know, Scott Scott stole some of my language there. I was going to say, I know there's this extreme temptation to look at, um, you know, Republicans 75% chance to flip the house and round that up to one. And, you know, you should not do that. I would strongly caution that. And my favorite example of that, and I think, you know, in certain certain corners of the internet, this has become famous, on the eve of the election 2016, I think Nate Silver had, uh, had, Trump, or had Trump at like 30% chance to win. So if you round that down to zero, you know, you're making some serious errors in terms of what actually could happen in reality. So you need to bear in mind, uh, you know, a few things around this. One is, you know, trend line is important. As Scott talked about earlier, we've seen, in the model the size of the projected Republican majority decreasing over time. And that trend is meaningful. If you look at something that happens day over day, you know, not to say it has no meaning, but it has way more meaning when you see something sustained over time. And we've seen the environment become more challenging through republicans along a few different metrics over time and that makes it more robust the other thing again is just making sure when you see that a candidate has a 10% chance to win that doesn't mean they have zero chance to win it doesn't mean that the other candidate is going to win by a huge amount that just because you know for example ron johnson has a 93% something chance like uh, along those lines to win wisconsin that does not mean he's going to win by 20 points that a 90% chance to win does not mean you were going to win by a huge margin. In fact, a 90% chance to win, that could be a pretty narrow margin because one out of 10 times, like the model thinks the other guy's going to win. So remembering that that connection between probability of winning and margin of victory are not the same and you can't... not exist
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: So important. You put that very clearly. Thank you. Uh, Okay, Before we hop off, um, coming soon, in a few weeks, we're going to hit what we call, in the business, the 48-hour reporting period. What does that mean? It is when campaigns must begin to file financial disclosures on receipts and spending within 48 hours. That they happen. And that I think we're hitting around October 18th. Is that right, Scott? Okay, about right. He's nodding. Yeah. Uh, when that happens, we're going to also add into this episode format, we're going to read the signals in that data for you the way practitioners do, for example, did super PAC X pull out of Pennsylvania because they know they won or because they're giving up, right? Um, yeah. Scott, anything else you want to bookmark there?
1: uh, obviously the 48 hours and then also TV schedules, right? Like if you really follow this stuff every once in a while, you read a story about, you know, money was pulled out of Arizona or put into Pennsylvania, you know, those, you know, campaigns are are slow moving chess games. They're not speed chess, right? Like we used to have the saying in campaigns, like a week out from the election, there's not a whole lot you can do. You know, all you can do is wait. There's not, you're not moving a lot of voters. You're not cutting a new TV ad. And we're quickly approaching that time where, you know, when you place your TV time, you place your digital, it is what it is. You you, you put your pieces on the board, now you got to let them play. And that's, that's where we're going to see these final pieces being placed here over the next two to three weeks.
0: So excited to doing this with you guys. Uh, Kyle, Scott, thank you. And thank you to the DDHQ team. We'll talk to you next week.
2: Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.